This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast family of podcasts. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Today, as we look ahead, we focus on where to put our collective energy as indivisibles here in Washington state. While all eyes are on Georgia, leaders there are asking for a little time to formulate, so we will instead talk about some needs we have that are closer to home. Indivisible senior regional organizer Nina Masavi joins us to talk about much-needed ballot-curing efforts in California House races. We also talk about the state of the race in Georgia, and Nina is pretty optimistic. That's next. With the runoff set for two Senate seats in Georgia, indivisibles in Washington are understandably excited about getting involved. But for the moment, we are being asked to give leaders on the ground in Georgia a little bit more time to come up with a game plan. So right now, we have some crucial action we can take to help our fellow indivisibles in California. And here to talk about it is Nina Masabi. She is Senior Regional Organizer for California and Washington. It is so cool that she is with us again. Hello, Nina. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. I think the last time I was here, we were a few weeks out before the election, and now we are one week after the election and in a much more positive and celebratory mood. I hope everyone feels the same way. Thank you. Thank you for saying that, because like, lest we bury the lead here, I mean, how are you feeling about uh, our our very major victories here and, and also about the role that Indivisible played in that? Yeah, so at the top of the ticket, we had the exact outcome that we were hoping for. As you all remember, in 2016, we lost Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. We won all three of those states back this election. That is in big part to the work that the progressive movement was doing all over the country to reach out to those states. And together, indivisibles across the country helped to make 60 million direct voter contact attempts. And that number is aggregated from what was on our tools and also what folks have reported to us that they've been tracking. So that number could even be bigger if you haven't told your organizer what you all did as a group. And several million of those direct voter contact attempts came from right here in Washington through texting, calling, and postcarding. So it was a really big effort from indivisibles across the country to be able to have those wins. And we're also on the verge of officially flipping Arizona and Georgia, two states that haven't gone blue in more than 25 years. I know results haven't been officially called for Biden for either of those states, but he is maintaining a strong lead in Arizona and his lead in Georgia is actually growing as more votes are being counted. Georgia will be going to a recount. I know everybody saw that. They're going to be doing an all-hand, all-by-hand recount, which is a little bit crazy, but you know that, that that's the, the decision they've made. We don't anticipate that will change the results of, uh, of that state. And that's a sentiment that was actually reiterated by the Georgia Secretary of State yesterday. So we have it on good authority. And just for you know, facts and figures for folks, in the last 20 years, there have been less than 30 statewide recounts. And the average swing in votes for those recounts has been 282 votes. The most a state has ever swung in a recount was 1,247 votes. That was in Bush v. Gore 
Biden is currently up by over 14,000 votes in Georgia, I would be willing to bet money that a recount doesn't flip Georgia back. It is so funny that you uh, just rattled off those statistics because I just got those off of 538 this morning because I was uh, actually uh, wondering about that as well. And so, yeah, it doesn't seem like recounts have ever really moved the needle all that much. And I'll just circle back on what you said. I mean, rebuilding the blue wall in the Midwest, uh, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, and then uh, Georgia and Arizona, it really is such a huge accomplishment. And congratulations to all of the indivisible members out there who work so very hard. I will also just mention some big wins that we had here in Washington, yeah. uh, because I haven't mentioned it here on the show yet post-election. But Governor Inslee, of course, reelected. Uh, A.G. Bob Ferguson is, is a very big deal because we know the work that he has done uh, as a bulwark against uh, just the extraordinary, extraordinary excesses uh, of the Trump administration. Uh, we flipped the state treasurer was a big deal. Yes. Big wins in... In the 42nd, 44th, and 28th LD, including Twana Nobles, who will now be the only black member of the Senate, uh, R90 passed, which we were very, very pleased about. This is age-appropriate uh, sexual education. And then Chris Rakedahl was uh, reelected as superintendent of public schools. So that was also a big deal. And, drumroll, in my own home district, the 8th, uh, we helped Dr. Kim Schreier hold on to her seat So in the 8th Congressional District. So all very good yeah. news here. You know, I'll just ask you, because we were constrained by COVID, um, you know, we we were limited in our arsenal a bit. We know that canvassing is the gold standard, of course, and we weren't able to go out and do that. How do you feel like we did considering the constraints around COVID? Yeah, I think that across the country, we did a really great job of keeping our folks safe and also being able to reach folks in non-traditional ways. We doubled down as, as a movement and as a party on our digital direct voter contact attempts. And in Washington, we didn't see any losses of our, of our house races there. We didn't have that same outcome across the country. And I think it's important to recognize that, but also to see the reality of it. In the history of our elections, we've seen huge swings in the House of Representatives for both parties. In, in non-pandemic years, in pandemic years, when we had, you know, pr previous pandemics that we've had. So that's dating all the way back to the mid-1800s. And just some recent times that we've had these huge swings. In 2006, Democrats flipped 31 seats to win back the House majority. Four years later, in 2010, Republicans came back with a huge vengeance, and they flipped 64 seats. It took us eight years to get to the place where we were able to flip enough to win the majority. That's where we are now. We flipped 41 seats in 2018. As of today, we have only lost nine of the seats that we flipped in 2018. There are still 16 races still too close to call. But even if we lost all 16 of those races, which we will not, that is a relatively small number. And we were able to do that during a pandemic with purely digital organizing against a party that was doing traditional canvassing. Right. So that's politics, right? This is politics. When one side sees the shock of their majority lost and they uh, they have their weaknesses exposed, the other side is going to try to overcompensate the next time around. And that's what we had. And given the pandemic, we really held on to a lot of those seats and we did a lot of really great digital organizing. Yeah. I mean, look, we had an extraordinary blue wave in 2018, as you mentioned, picked up 41 seats there. And I, and I just will ask you, um, I, 
and I've been thinking about this a lot, is is one of the factors in, you know, losing a few of the House seats that we won in the, the blue wave, just it has it having to do with the fact that defending red district Democratic seats during a presidential uh, year is just really tough, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I... I think as we look at the Senate races and we look at the state houses as well, you we have this this trend that we th- thought was going to happen, where if we got the top of the ticket, it would all kind of fall down and trickle down to the bottom. And what we're seeing is that didn't happen. We had a lot of Republicans and independents who voted for Biden at the top of the ticket because they didn't feel that Trump represented their Republican values, and they voted for more traditional Republicans down at the bottom. So in seats in California, for example, where we lost some of the House seats that we flipped in 2018, they put up some really great traditional Republican candidates. And you know, a lot of the, the folks that were able to flip those seats back to red, they were women. The, the GOP chair, really focused on trying to get women back into the party. That brought more women out to vote. That really changed what the Republican Party was looking for in a lot of those House seats and a lot of those state House seats as well. So I think that the common trickle-down effect of getting the top of the ticket and hoping you get the bottom as well just didn't exist because Trump wasn't a normal Republican running for re-election. So that's a part of it. I do think the the pandemic had something to do with it, I'm sure, as well. Um, But it's also very common for some of those seats that we won by narrow margins in 2018 to swing back because they're going to invest as much money as they possibly can into the seats that they're able to win. And those are going to be the most winnable seats. Well, let's talk about the action that is needed in California, which is why you are here with us today. So as I mentioned, and I will just reiterate, I know that people are very excited to get involved uh, with the Georgia Senate race. I will have information on that next week. We're going to be talking to some indivisibles on the ground here on the show next week. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, uh, you are asking us to focus on what are now three California House races and I think a couple of uh, ballot initiatives, uh, if I'm not mistaken. What can you tell us about all of this? And and particularly, uh, why are the house races important? Yeah, so in California, we have now three critical house races that are still too close to call. Originally, it was four. I know some people who are watching this got my email asking folks to help out. Unfortunately, Congressman Harley Ruda in Orange County was not able to close the gap enough to win his seat, and he conceded yesterday to his Republican challenger. So still up for grabs are California's 21st, 25th, and 39th districts. In the 25th district, Christy Smith has been going back and forth with Mike Garcia for who has the lead, and the margin has been so narrow, sometimes less than 100 votes. The campaign is doing some really aggressive ballot curing, and all of that can be done through phone banking, and they could definitely use some help from folks. We also have some canvassing ballot curing going on the ground, but obviously for folks in Washington, um, you know, you can't get on a plane and get down here, so on the phones is great. Um, In the 21st and the 39th district, Congressman T.J. Cox and Congressman Gil Cisneros are in tight battles to win re-election. Both are closing the gap on their opponents and are really within striking distance. They are also running some pretty aggressive ballot curing phone banking and could use a ton of help. 
Notably for Congressman T.J. Cox, up until yesterday, he was, uh, I believe, six or 7,000 votes down. Yesterday, they were able to close that gap. They're now 4,000 votes down. A lot of that is coming from mail-in ballots that have been arriving this week and also provisional ballots that they're starting to count. In the 39th district, this one is really interesting because it wasn't totally unexpected that this race would be so tight. For those of you who didn't follow this race as closely in 2018, um, I, you know, I, I want to just draw some parallels. This year, Gil Cisneros is facing Young Kim, who he actually narrowly defeated in 2018. This is a rematch between the two. And there are some very similar scenarios playing out. So during the days immediately following the 2018 election, the race looked like it was actually going to Young Kim. She even had flown out to DC for freshman orientation. But then the district continued to count provisional ballots and mail-in ballots. And Gill was able to get a lead and was declared the winner ultimately. That district is split between three counties in California. And so it's a little bit of a trickier district to call day after because of the different processes that happen in those different counties. All three of these seats are absolutely critical for maintaining a strong majority in the House and also maintaining a strong progressive California delegation. Similar to Washington, California, you know, has that really strong progressive delegation that is able to take those leadership positions in the House, and they're able to push those strong progressive agendas. And that's something that we lose if, if we are not able to maintain these three seats in the House. So, you know, you've said that uh, the smaller the Democratic majority, the more difficult it's going to be uh, for Democrats in 2020 with the midterms. It seems obvious on its surface, but just talk a little bit about why. Yeah, definitely. So as I mentioned before, our history shows how quickly that pendulum can swing and control can shift in the House. We were able to fend off a full sweep from Republicans this year while they were spending so much money at the top of the ticket to try to get Trump reelected. Depending on the results of the Georgia Senate runoff, which you know we'll talk about in a moment, we may be in full attack mode to try to win the Senate majority. The larger our House majority is going into the midterms, the less worried we have to be about losing the House majority and the Senate majority in the same year. And the more we can focus on giving President-elect Joe Biden a Congress that will actually work to bring about change. Yep, totally agreed with that. And, you know, obviously, you know, even if we do win the Senate right now, it's going to be a 50-50 split with Kamala Harris coming in to break vice president-elect, rather, Kamala Harris mm -hmm. coming in to break the tie. And so uh, to be able to give ourselves more comfortable margins in the Senate would really allow us to do a lot of the Democratic reforms that uh, Leah and Ezra talk about in We Are Indivisible. So uh, you also mentioned that there were a couple of ballot measures in California we should be aware of. Yeah, so there are a few of them that we have been working pretty diligently on. Um, uh, one, one big win that we had was Prop 20, which was a reform that tried to change the, the classifications of certain crimes, and it would have allowed for much stricter punishment for some, some misdemeanors that have kind of always been misdemeanors in our history, and even ones that other 
other states are starting to decriminalize. Um, so that was a big one that we actually had a win. That was really great. Um, and it, it was a huge effort from the progressive movement. Prop 15 is another one that we we were working really hard on that did not have as good of an outcome as we wanted. They're still counting the ballots, but as of right now, we are not anticipating that it will be able to pass. And that one was to reform a lot of the property tax um, guidelines and a lot of the property tax um you know, legislation that we have. It goes back to Proposition 13 as a California native. I know it very, very well. Yeah. And, you know, it favors, it favors the rich. It favors corporations. It favors folks who were able to buy homes, you know, 30, 40 years ago and, and are still just paying property taxes on a home that they bought for $80,000 and is now, you know, worth over a million dollars. And it really limits the ability for young people like me, you know, working professionals who have lived in in the state for most of their lives to be able to buy anything. And it also has pushed for corporations to have to pay their fair share of taxes so that that money can go to a lot of public spending that we don't have money for. And a lot of that has to do with this kind of overall conversation we're having about how municipalities are spending their money and how more needs to go towards the public good and less going into the pockets of people who don't necessarily need it. So unfortunately, you know, we are losing the race in Prop 15. There are still ballot carrying efforts happening, and I will definitely share that information with folks so that you can get involved. Um, But a big win with Prop 20, and that's something that I want to give a huge shout out to our whole progressive movement for helping with. So in terms of the ballot curing on all of this, what is the deadline? So every county has a little bit of a different deadline. For the Orange County races, they will continue to do ballot curing for the next two weeks. Um, Up in TJ Cox's district, they will also be continuing to do it for the next two weeks. I'm not sure the deadline for the ballot propositions, so I will get back to you on that. The state has 30 days to um, certify, 30 more days to certify the election, and they will likely cut off any ballot carrying efforts prior to that so that they can count those votes properly and do the certification. So I would say probably within the next two weeks is is the deadline, mostly across the state. Okay. Well, I will have information for people about how to get involved with that at indivisiblepodcast.org. And again, I will stress for people that we will have information about how to get involved in in Georgia likely next week. I'm just going to ask you, because you talked to other uh, organizers on the ground there, what is your sense of how these two uh, Georgia Senate race uh, runoff races are shaping up? What's what's the word on the ground from what you're hearing? Yeah, so I'll give a bit of an overview for folks who, you know, don't necessarily um, know exactly how Georgia election rules work, because I think that's how most of us were before, like, last week. Um, so in... In Georgia, the Senate races allow for third-party candidates to be on the general ballot and require that the winner get 50% plus one vote to be declared the winner in the general election. If no candidate reaches that threshold, the top two candidates, which is almost never a third-party candidate, go to a runoff in January. This means that right now we have a runoff starting with um, Purdue and Ossoff for one of the Senate seats and with Warnock and Loeffler for the other. Just for some information for folks about how the general turned out for both of those seats. 
candidates. So for Ossoff, with just three candidates on the ballot, um, he was within two points of the incumbent, Senator Perdue. So we have a good sense for what we need to do in that race. For Warnock, it was a special election, and there were eight Dems, six Republicans, and six third-party candidates on the ballot. Yeah. So the landscape of that seat is a little bit trickier to predict. We know that in total, 48.4% of the voters chose Democrats. 49.3% chose Republicans, and the rest went for third-party candidates. So we have some sense of how at least party lines are falling in terms of how voters went for that seat. Both of these races are going to be getting, you know, lots of money. They're probably going to be an unprecedented amount. No. Right. They're probably going to be the most expensive Senate races, I think, in, in my lifetime. Um, and it's it's going to be a bloodbath, but it really is going to be determined by who can get more people to turn out in a January runoff election. Um, so I know there's a big conversation from folks about can we win either or both or, or even just one of the seats in Georgia. I've been on calls with operatives all week about these two seats, and there really is a split consensus. Some folks think that because we haven't won a Senate runoff in Georgia in the last 28 years, that it just can't be done. I don't necessarily agree with that reasoning in the moment we're in now, but I understand why folks would think that. Um, and I am optimistic about these two races because this year is not like the last 28 years. This year, we saw a Democrat win the presidential vote in Georgia for the first time in nearly three decades. We have Dem candidates within two points of their GOP challengers or you know, vice versa, the Dem challengers against the GOP candidates. We have more progressive grassroots groups like Indivisible participating in electoral work than we've had before. And to be completely honest with you, we have Stacey Abrams. And we can really say with confidence that Stacey Abrams and her efforts with young voters, young activists in Georgia to run voter registration drives and to do GOTV events are really the only reason why Biden will win Georgia this election once they finish the recount. So we're in a much different position today going into the Georgia runoff than we have been before. Um, so that, that's kind of the landscape of where we're at. And, you know, I know folks are really eager to get involved in the two Georgia seats. Um, they're, they're going to run off. We will be involved in them. And I know that this group will be instrumental in helping us win those seats in January. And I, and I really am confident that we can win one or both of them. And, you know, there are some groups who have already jumped in and, and they're creating postcarding programs and other, you know, direct voter contact efforts. I really want to urge all of you, and I know that, you know, you had said this before, and, and I want to urge it again for everybody to just take a step back for a moment. Let the groups on the ground regroup this week and come up with their plan of action for these runoffs. It's critical that we follow the lead of the activists who brought us here, who brought us to a place where we are going to win Georgia at the top of the ticket. And really, like, Stacey Abrams is our, is our beacon. She's our guiding light. And we're going to be plugging in with them, absolutely. But we're going to meet them where they need us, not where we think that they need us. And the only way that we will win those seats is if we trust 
the you know on the ground knowledge of the activists in Georgia. And I think it's so great that you have some folks coming on next week who are on the ground who are able to talk about it because they know that landscape best. Yep, yep, 100% on all of that, especially uh, double underscore on Stacey Abrams. I, I feel like she is our, our secret weapon and really uh, is kind of shining a light for the path forward for the Democratic Party in terms of organizing. Absolutely. Before I let you go, because you are in California and you have worked there for so long and you really kind of know the landscape just for fun, uh, I've yeah. been thinking about who will replace uh Senator Harris, uh, now Vice President-elect Harris, in the Senate, who uh, uh, Governor Newsom might put in there. And I would be very curious to get your thoughts on that. I know that there are a few frontrunners. Yeah, so there are a few frontrunners. Um, we've got Karen, you know, Representative Karen Bass, an astounding member of Congress, um, has definitely been the top of that conversation. I will say the progressive groups on the ground have been circulating letters, and they have a lot of thoughts of who they want and who they don't want on, um, you know, on that short list and, and who they would like Governor Newsom to appoint. Personally, I, I have a huge fondness for uh, Representative Bass. I'm a big, big fan of Congresswoman Barbara Lee, big fan of Congresswoman Maxine Waters. And I think all three of them are in really great positions to be able to carry that seat in the same way that now Vice President-elect Kamala Harris did. Personally, I would love to see that that person um, be a woman. I think it's really a powerful message to have the two senators from California be women. And we have some really qualified um, you know, senior members of Congress who can hold that position. Of course, we don't know what our majority looks like, so we don't know if, if Speaker Pelosi will let go of anybody, um, and especially any of our, our really senior members who hold such strong leadership positions. But uh, Representative Karen Bass has been top of that list, and progressives absolutely love it and are really in support of that. And, um, you know, they've got a few other, like, junior members that that they are favoring. Um, Representative Nanette Berrigan is is one that, that folks have talked about. And, um, and Congressman Ted Lieu is another one. So there has been a lot of conversation. And, you know, I, I really would love to see a woman in that seat. And I think we have a bunch of qualified women to be able to take it. You absolutely do. It is just uh, the, the, the California's cup runneth over when it comes to extraordinarily cal- uh, qualified women. Um, a, a name that I have heard floated out there was you know, Katie Porter. But I just because she's in such a vulnerable seat, I can't imagine that happening. But this is something that I would love to circle back with you on because yeah. I find it fascinating. So so, uh, oh, and I should also mention a uh, fun item. The Seattle Times just reported today that Governor Inslee may be tapped for Secretary of Energy. Uh, some people have thought EPA. So we might be looking at uh, Secretary uh, Inslee on that. So once again, yeah. for all of the ballot curing, people can go to indivisiblepodcast.org to find out more information about that. But Nina Masabi, so cool to talk to you. Uh, thank you for all the work that you're doing uh, down there and also for us up here. And, uh, you know, don't be a stranger. Come back soon. Thank you so much. Thanks for your partnership and big congratulations and kudos to all of our indivisibles in Washington. We did it. We're here just a couple more weeks and uh, we'll be across the finish line. Thank you, everyone. 
Before we go, I would be remiss if I didn't mention some ballot curing needs we have here in Washington, specifically in King County. I will have information in the show notes for you at indivisiblepodcast.org. And that's going to do it for today. Thanks again to Nina Masabi. The website for the show is indivisiblepodcast.org, and our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at indivisiblepod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc., and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Thanks this week to Catherine Fysiers. Special thanks to Lori Caldwell. And as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.